Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On December 8th, Joe Biden nominated Ohio Congresswoman Marsha Fudge to be Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Marsha Fudge, Congresswoman from Ohio, nominated not for the position that a lot of people wanted her for, at least in the Democratic Party, Secretary of Agriculture, but housing and urban development. She made an odd choice for the role because her expertise is in agriculture, and she had lobbied with the help of Jim Clyburn to be Secretary of Agriculture. Biden was reserving that spot for Tom Vilsack, whose absolutely wretched tenure as Ag Secretary under Obama somehow meant he had to get the gig a second time around, even as antitrust advocates and civil rights leaders pleaded with Biden not to name Vilsack. The pick had a patronizing feel, like when Trump filled his HUD position with the black guy he knew, Ben Carson. Fudge, however, had a background in policy and is an adept politician, so she could fill the role comfortably, even if it wasn't her thing. Within a week of that awkward announcement, Nina Turner announced she'd be running to replace Fudge in the upcoming special election. I am fighting because of love. I want everybody to be able to live out their greatest greatness for love. So I am asking you, if you are a voter in this district, elect me to be the next congresswoman of this district. God bless you all. Turner had represented a huge chunk of the district as a state senator and was well-known in the community. Before she became Bernie Sanders' firebrand surrogate in his 2016 and 2020 campaigns, she had been a more traditional politician and had built enough relationships with the local establishment that she was able to brand herself as a unity candidate going into the race. She'd need it because she had two tough soundbites of her own making to overcome with more traditional Team Blue Democrats. Here she was eight days before the 2016 presidential election. I know that you were a super Bernie Sanders supporter. And in light of this and the fact that you did get on board and back Hillary Clinton, does any of this make Thomas, you regret Thomas, that decision? I have not. I'm not I'm not backing anybody in this general election. Let me clear that up right away. And in 2020, she made a remark about voting for Biden that became central in the special election for the House seat. You got two bowls of shit in front of you, and you got to pick one. That's the situation we're in right now. Bowl number one or bowl number two? Despite all that, thanks to her skill on the stump, her proud embrace of a bold progressive agenda, and her long relationships in the district, she was the early frontrunner. A new poll out today by the campaign of one of the hopefuls shows a wide gap in the race. The poll commissioned by former state senator Nina Turner shows her with a 50 percent support among likely voters. Among many of the Bernie diehards, there's nobody outside of Bernie and maybe even including Bernie as beloved as Turner. We're going to get glad because we're going to use this energy and this synergy that we have to help Senator Bernard Sanders make it to the White House. And baby, when we get to the White House, y'all ready for that? Those former Bernie supporters came out for her big time, and she was quickly raising hundreds of thousands of dollars from across the country. Polls showed her ahead by 30 points. But partway through the race, international events intervened. 
breaking overnight. New explosions rock Gaza and Israel as fighting in the Middle East escalates and the death toll rises. All of a sudden, Israel-Palestine became an issue in the campaign. When the original four members of the squad ran for Congress, the issue wasn't central to any of their races, even though Rashida Tlaib would be the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in Congress, and she and Ilhan Omar were both outspoken critics of Israel's human rights abuses. After her 2018 win, Ocasio-Cortez's star shot straight up as she nailed one media appearance after another. Then came Israel-Palestine. You use the term the occupation of Palestine. Um, I think it, what I meant is like the, the settlements, places where, um, where Palestinians are experiencing uh, difficulty. Do you think you can expand on that? I am not the expert on geopolitics on this issue. After being sworn in, the first controversy to hit a squad member involved a tweet about the pro-Israel lobbying group, AIPAC. Suggesting money was driving U.S. politicians to defend Israel writing, quote, it's all about the Benjamins, baby. In 2020, Justice Democrats, the leftist group widely associated with AOC, backed Jamal Bowman in a primary challenge to Elliot Engel, the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee and one of Israel's most outspoken and lockstep defenders. AOC endorsed Bowman, and even in heavily Jewish precincts, Bowman trounced Engel. In May of this year, as Israel launched its assault on Gaza, for the first time in history, a parade of Democrats went to the House floor to denounce the attack. I feel the pain of every child who's forced to hide under their beds because they fear for their life and every parent who deals with that anguish. And I wish we as a nation treated that pain equally. But right now we are not. This is our business because we are playing a role in it. And the United States must acknowledge its role in the injustice and human rights violations of Palestinians. I want to read something a mother named Iman in Gaza wrote two days ago. She said, quote, tonight I put the kids to sleep in our bedroom so that when we die, we die together and no one would live to mourn the loss of another. This week, Democratic leaders tried to slip another billion dollars in funding for Israel into a spending package, but progressives pressured them to take it out, setting off a fight within the caucus. Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, whose steadfast support of Israel makes Engels look soft, pushed for a standalone vote on the House floor to make sure the money went through. Progressives urged him not to force an unnecessarily charged vote arguing it would only exacerbate the situation and that he could easily include it in the upcoming National Defense Authorization Act. Hoyer put it on the floor anyway, and it quickly became clear that Democratic leaders were trying to isolate the squad and their allies and paint them as anti-Semites who didn't even support a project aimed at defending civilians from rockets raining down on them. The bill was framed by Democrats as simply fulfilling an agreement Obama had made with Israel to fund the Iron Dome. And Pelosi herself made that claim on the House floor. But in fact, the text of the legislation was explicit that this is a new additional billion dollars. Quote, such funds are in addition to funds provided pursuant to the U.S.-Israel Iron Dome Procurement Agreement, unquote. The claim that this was not additional money was just a lie. The debate was ferocious. Here's Rashida Tlaib. I rise in opposition to this supplemental. 
I will not support an effort to enable and support war crimes, human rights abuses, and violence. We cannot talk, be talking only about Israelis' need for safety at a time when Palestinians are living under a violent apartheid system and are dying from what Human Rights Watch has said are war crimes. Florida Democrat Ted Deutsch then rose to respond. Mr. Speaker, I cannot, I cannot allow one of my colleagues to stand on the floor of the House of Representatives and label the Jewish democratic state of Israel an apartheid state. I reject it to falsely characterize the state of Israel as consistent with those, let's be clear, it's consistent with those who advocate for the dismantling of the one Jewish state in the world. And when there is no place on the map for one Jewish state, that's anti-Semitism. And I reject that. Steny Hoyer made the same argument as Pelosi, and he also thanked Deutsch for speaking. Support for Israel has traditionally and must always be a bipartisan issue. Since its founding, millennia ago in some respects, more particularly politically, 1948 to today, Israel has been under constant threat of attack from those who would deny its right to exist. Jamal Bowman voted yes, and initially, 10 Democrats voted no. Tlaib, Omar, Cori Bush, Ayanna Presley, Andre Carson, Marie Newman, Raul Grijalva, Chuy Garcia, and Ocasio-Cortez. But then Ocasio-Cortez, breaking down in tears on the House floor, switched her vote to present. The politics of Israel-Palestine are now inescapably linked with the rising energy on the Democratic Party's left. That proved to be the case in Nina Turner's race, and not to her benefit. On August 3rd, she lost to Chantel Brown by just over 4,000 votes. A big victory overnight for the Biden wing of the Democratic Party, moderate Chantel Brown defeating the progressive candidate Nina Turner in a special primary election in Ohio's 11th congressional district. Turnout was minimal with Brown winning 35,504 votes to Turner's 31,202. Brown won't be sworn in until November, and, as Turner told me, she's considering challenging her for the seat again in 2022. First, she has to figure out why she lost. Joining me now for a frank conversation on the race and the state of progressive politics is former state Senator Nina Turner. Nina? Welcome to Deconstructed. It is wonderful to be with you, And Ryan. good to see you here in Washington, D.C. Yes, on a rainy, Indeed. rainy afternoon. So I, I was hoping we could kind of break this uh, campaign conversation down into like three different buckets. And curious for your take on other elements to add in. But on the one hand, things that were out of your control. You know, things yes. going to the race that were out of your control. Everything from outside spending the way that your opponent, Chantel Brown, decided to run the campaign, the way that the governor decided to set the date of the campaign, those types of things. Yeah. Then we can talk about things that were within your control, the tactics and strategy of the campaign itself, and then things that are sort of within your control, the things that predate the campaign, where the progressive movement is, that, that sort sure. of thing. You, you want to start with uh, things you couldn't control? Yeah, why don't and we? Let's, let's do just that. Start so, with the with the the ugly first. Right. So, well, so the the race is only a race because Marsha Fudge is Appoint, uh, appointed yeah. to be a HUD, HUD secretary. secretary. HUD secretary. Yeah. 
For Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, I am, I am really pleased to nominate Congresswoman Marcia Fudge. And so when you saw this opening, there were a lot of people who thought, well, this, this election could come, what, as early as May? That's right. And we, right. Ryan, our, the campaign, we believed that for, you know, the longest time because we did a calculation. And we also talked to, you know, experts, people down, you know, in Columbus who kind of sort of knew what some of the rules were. So, yeah, we, we thought it was going to be a very short race. And it, it seems like it was a partisan decision to keep it open as long as possible. Because here we are, Pelosi can now only lose three votes for her reconciliation package. And partly that's because this seat and one other seat have been held open by Republican governors. Did you get an indication that that's what drove? I didn't, right? I, to, 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 I know some surprise of, uh, you know, Democrats and, and or progressives. Sometimes that's not one and the same. So let me make a distinction. <laughs> but the Ohio Revised Code is very prescriptive about timing. And really what held up the date is the slowness by which the United States Senate actually confirmed her. Mm. That is really what did it. So, no, there was no, not to say that if there was opportunity to do it, but in this case, Governor DeWine did not play politics with this. The trigger was it had to be a vacancy. It took mm -hmm. the United States Senate forever to confirm her. And so as the clock was ticking, it ended up being in August. But not, there were no... Yeah, no foolishness on the Republicans' part in Ohio. It was just a timing mechanism, and the prescription of the Ohio Revised Code is very clear in terms of the dates. And so if the Senate would have moved her through immediately. That's right. Then that primary would have most would likely have been, would happened, have happened in May. Much yes, earlier. that's right. And so, so initially thinking that the race is going to be in May, and when you sat down and looked at the race, what was your sense of how many people would turn out? Like, what was your quote-unquote win number? And then what was your path that you saw? Yeah. To winning. I knew that the turnout was going to be very low. I mean, on my team, we studied other special elections as best we could. I mean, uh, that was a unique situation mm -hmm. for the 11th congressional district. So we knew that the win number could be as low as, you know, 15,000 to maybe about 50,000. Right. It just depends. Depend. That's not the win number, but the range of people who would run. And because there were so many people in the race, 13 people... You don't need a lot mm -hmm, yeah. uh, to to win. And the day, you know, believing at first that the race was going to actually be in May also influenced staffing and how we pick staff. And for me, it was and my campaign manager, it was really leaning on people who had done something like this before or similarly because we didn't have a lot of time to train up, if that makes right. sense. One of the observations looking back on my race right now, once our campaign realized that the primary was not going to be in May, we should have immediately made a mid-course correction. Mm -hmm. So when did it become clear that Chantel Brown was going to be the kind of one-on-one opponent? After starting with a crowded field, the primary, which is on August 3rd, has come down to former state senator and Bernie Sanders aide Nina Turner against Cuyahoga County Democratic Party chairwoman Chantel Brown. You know, even that part has some nuance to it. From the moment I announced my run, which was on December the 15th, and, you know, progressive world went crazy uh, in the positive. Because for them, it, it was, wow, you know, they saw, they see me, you know, Nina Turner as a leader, a very strong leader of this progressive movement. And then also my association, my work with Senator Bernard Sanders and for them, a lot of them, I heard, wow, this is our opportunity. They stole it from Senator Sanders, mm -hmm. they being the power structure. 
to help Senator Nina Turner. We're going to do this. And get him back now. Yeah, we, yeah, that kind of thing. And I was told very early on by very well-connected people in the political world in, in Cleveland that there was going to be an Anybody But Nina campaign mm-hmm. launched and that they were going to come at me with a type of firepower unseen in an election of this type. And what I mean by that, the seat is securely Democrat. Right. So for more corporatist Dems or people who are any blue will do, it shouldn't have mattered mm-hmm. because the seat was going to go to a Democrat. And what that person told me, as we know now, turned out to be true. 13 people in the race and all of the firepower came in against me. And it was clear that uh, Ms. Brown was the selected one. I think it could have been any of the other candidates, mm-hmm. at least maybe two or three of the other candidates. So it's so not so much about her as it was about me. So that became really clear early because she is also the mentee of the former congresswoman. So the power structure, the local power structure also coalesced. And she was the local power structure. Right, right. right. She was chair chair of the the county party, which failed greatly during the presidential election. But that's a a story for another time. But yeah, she was and still is the power structure. But also, you know, being the mentee of the former congresswoman doesn't hurt because then even people who may think this might not necessarily be the right candidate for our district, if they're fond of or have relationship with the former congresswoman, people are going to fall in line pretty quickly. And that happened. And so you knew the big money was coming. I did, Ryan. I knew they were coming. I guess I did not realize how deep and how hard they would go. Nina Turner is not a real Democrat. You can't trust her. When she had the chance to endorse Hillary Clinton and help the Democrats beat Donald Trump, she was flirting with Jill Stein. You can't trust her. And I should have because I was side by side with Senator Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. And as I recall, in 2020, even the hint that he may run in 2020, there were all kinds of articles and big major national newspapers uh, making it clear that there was going to be anybody but Bernie campaign launched as well. And that impacted me. And I did have some people tell me because I supported Senator Sanders, they were coming for me, too. Right. So you ended up raising, by the end, over $6 million? Yes. The movement came to my rescue. And she ended up raising only about 2.7-ish. So, yeah, close to three. And uh, uh, yeah. Close to three. And what's interesting yeah. about that, actually, is that some of the outside super PAC groups spent their money on text messaging and email campaigns driving money to, to her. That's right. So while the stats will on paper will say she raised almost three and then something like 2.6, 2.7 was spent on the outside to benefit her. Actually, a lot of the money that she raised came from the super PACs, but you know, there's a way you can use Facebook and text messaging and, That's and exactly email to right. kind of drive money. So it appears like she has more. And also then she can control how she spends that money right, rather than having to signal through the red box. And let, let's talk about that red yeah, box. Yeah, let's, let's talk yeah. about, you know, I read this a tremendous article in The Intercept <laughs> written by Excellent this publication. journalist by the name of Ryan Grimm. No, peeling back the layers. And regardless, I want to take the 11th Congressional District race out of this just for a minute. And I want folks who are listening to us to understand how a red box and anything that thwarts the democratic process in a way that makes it muddy is wrong. And Citizens United, you know, there's so many loopholes in that, and that's why this candidate was able to do that. So a red box in the 11th district can very well, in Ohio, could be a red box in the 11th district in 
in Illinois right. or anywhere. So this is not just about this one race. This is about whether or not we need to have dark money and over-concentration of big money out of politics because it does absolutely taint the process. And what if it's a candidate that couldn't even compete to the level that I was able to compete? Then they will mm-hmm. absolutely have no hope and they can't fight back and they cannot respond. So I'm, I'm talking to this issue. Yes, it pained me and my campaign, but I also want people to take a global view and take me out of this. Red box on a website signaling to dark money how you Ex- want them. Yeah, explain to people what a red box to, is. Since I mean, you've you've run a lot of campaigns. Yeah. So if somebody is a super PAC, they cannot directly communicate with the person they're trying to benefit directly. And I put that in air quotes. We know that this is a farce. It is. It's phony. And we have to do something about dark money. We got to do something about Citizens United. But in any case, the candidate in question or any candidate could put a message about how they want dark money groups to attack their opponent. In this case, in this race, it was me, but it could have been Mm -hmm. anybody. And so they take the research that they get on a candidate. You know, I had research on her. I mean, that's what you do. You research your opponent, try to find, you know, the weaknesses. And her campaign, she, they put the messages that they wanted the dark money groups to attack me on right there in plain sight. Now, The reason why it is legally allowed, air quotes, is because there was not direct communication. It's not a private communication. Right. So anybody, Mm -hmm. you know, Sue from Georgia could go on and and, look at it. But there were a lot of breadcrumbs pointing Mm -hmm. to exactly who that campaign was signaling to. Right, uh, Right underneath the red box, apropos of nothing, was a quote from Mark Melman. Yes. He has many hats. Uh-huh. Uh, but they listed specifically his title as DMFI right. president, which is the Democratic Majority for Israel, which is the super PAC that had gone after Jamal Bowman, yes. had gone after Bernie Sanders. Yes. And she clearly was hoping yeah. that they would come and in. And they endorsed her. She, right, she they had endorsed her, it. but they hadn't started spending Right. They hadn't yet. Started spending. And it seems like some of the hesitation was their, they and their donors were wondering, is this a winnable race? Yeah. Because if we're going to spend... $4 million mm-hmm. of our donors' money, we want to get a return for that. That's right. Because you, you've been criticized for going up early on the air and spending early and then not having enough down the stretch. Was part of your calculation to try to make it seem like she couldn't win and to, to keep that big money out? Or was that just a miscalculation? No, it was, or, right. No, right. we. it was very strategic. Also, the calculus of thinking that the race would be uh, in May. Now, we did realize at a certain point, obviously, that wasn't going to be in May. But absolutely, it was to cement my front runner status. And mm-hmm. that is a tactic in politics. So anybody that's criticizing that, you can critique hindsight being 2020, but in our shoes at the moment, it was the right decision to make in that moment, which is I have high name ID in my district. Matter of fact, I, I represented half of that district as an Ohio state senator. So half of the 11th district was my Senate district. I have a national profile. So you go up, the strategy is to show that you are the front runner and that you can win, thereby trying to stop the people who want to come outside to try to help a candidate. You want to try to make them think about it. Right. That was the goal. And then the poll came out. And clearly, Ryan, had that race been in May, right? you would be interviewing Congresswoman Nina Turner. That's irrefutable. Right. Polls are snapshots in time, though. Mm-hmm. And I've always admitted that even when I you know, was on Senator Sanders campaign and we would be elated. I mean, because if you're the candidate and the poll is in your favor, of course, you're going right. to be elated. 
But I always wanted to temper that by saying this is a snapshot in time and it can change at any moment. And, you know. Right. It, right. It, it definitely changed. And Melman has said as much publicly. I think he told Daniel Marins for one article that, that there was hesitation early on. Like, yeah. we don't think she can do it. But then as the gap narrowed. Yes. You, and there's an asymmetry because while three, four million dollars is an awful lot of money to normal people, when you're talking to billionaires... It's a drop it's in like, the bucket. You know what? Let's just throw a few chips on the table here and see what happens. That's right. And also the media market in the 11th Congressional District, compa- Ohio, compared to a New York, compared to a Los Angeles, that money can go a very long way. So it is important that people understand that the concentration of those kinds of dollars in such an affordable, by comparison of other big cities, you know, that, that impact of that money. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Something somewhat unique, I think, did happen in this race. I want to talk about that for a second, which was on May 10th, Israel and Gaza. Yes. An Israeli airstrike destroyed a high rise. Meanwhile, the rocket fire from Gaza continues. The Israeli Every couple of years, this happens. Yeah. But this time, the squad in Congress and other progressives in Congress kind of really stood up and criticized Israel in a way that Israel had not been criticized. They did. Congressman the, Pocan. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, he organized an entire yes, night on the floor. And he actually endorsed me, too. So I right. want to throw that out there. But yeah, right. I'm, you go and, right ahead. And so it winds up right in the middle of your race, polarizing this issue. That's right. And for groups like DMFI, they have decided that the squad is not just anti-Israel, but straight up anti-Semitic. Yes. And I think that contributed to it their did. ability to raise money. If they had gone to war in, say, September, but the fact that they went to war right in the middle of the race, did you notice a change in the dynamics of the race around that time? It's because it lasted about 11 days, but but it was a hot 11 days. I did. I mean, I even have emails right now to this day of local, primarily business leaders in the Jewish community where they were encouraging uh, Republicans to vote. Mm-hmm. You know, in this primary and we're saying things like we must support Chantel Brown in no way can we let Nina Turner win this race. Some of the squad members are my friends and many of them I knew before they became Congress people. Mm-hmm. So I have relationship with them. And I was told by a prominent Jewish businessman that we're coming at you with everything you got. You need to disavow the squad. And people are hearing this first with you and me talking, Ryan, because I have not told this level of truth. Mm -hmm. And I was told that I needed to disavow the squad. If I didn't do it, they were coming for me. And that also Palestinian community didn't have rights that were more important than the state of Israel. And what hurt me to my core is that I 
again, as half of the 11th congressional district was my Senate district, I was in service to the Jewish community. And the Jewish community is not homogeneous. I have I, lots mm-hmm. of, and I still enjoy lots of Jewish support. So I right. want to put that out there too, because right. I want people to know, don't paint this the wrong way. What really hurt me is that the very persons that I got these kind of calls from, they know me. They saw my work. We work mm-hmm. side by side on certain issues in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And for them to all of a sudden turn on me, the only thing I ever said throughout the campaign is justice and equality and freedom for Israel and the same kind of justice for Palestinians. Mm-hmm. That was it. Right. Uh, I was asked the BDS question. I said, no, I don't agree with BDS. There are some people who do agree with the BDS movement, some people who don't. There's some Jewish people who are okay with the BDS movement. But what I said is that any group, whether I agree with them or not, and the reason why I didn't agree with BDS, because I want to bring people together. I am known as a bridge builder. And, you know, as much as some corporatist Dems want to strip that from me, if you look at the types of people who endorse my campaign right. from national to local, they span the entire gamut. Yeah, locally, of the, you had a ton of mayors yeah, and like other establishments. Who are not progressive. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So if you really like look at this intellectually, Side by side with any of the candidates, but especially the person that ended up being my number one competitor who had the most diverse set of Democrats supporting mm-hmm. her. It was me. I had from the most progressive all the way to people who are Democrats, but they they marched to the beat of their own drum. And I'm speaking of my mayor, Mayor Frank D. Jackson. Mm-hmm. You know, he is a Democrat, but he marches to the beat of his own drum, showing that I can bring people together. So trying to take away my agency and telling me what I have to do. And then as Dr. West often says, how can other people tell you who to love? I am a humanitarian. So of course I want, I want justice and security for both peoples. What's wrong with that? But let me go back to the BDS question. So the reason why you're, that I don't support that movement because I want to bring people together. Right. I said, but they have a right to right. peaceably protest and make their views known. Right. But that's, but for but for a lot of the pro-Israel, yeah, the haw- Israel hawk, the yeah, the, better yeah, way of putting there it, is a the Israel hawkish community, yeah, BDS they think ought to be illegal. That's right, and so that's exactly whether you support right. it or not, that's not no, because they wanted me to, and and um, because I wouldn't sell my soul, because I do believe in justice and security for both peoples, both mm. peoples. They let me know they were coming, and uh, and, and so they I, did. I, and so I think you can actually separate. I'm curious for your take on this because you were on the ground, but I think yeah. you could separate out in some ways the the, the spending from DMFI pack and and the local organizing among the Israeli hawk community. Yeah. Uh, now they fed each other, and when well, I think when DMFI saw it, it happening, yeah. they pumped neighborhoods full of mailers and drove and they it. also sent emails out to the Jewish community nationally, mm-hmm. painting me as an anti-Semite which nothing can be further for the truth. You talk about pain and hurt. I am a conscious-minded black woman in America. I'm a freedom fighter. I'm not perfect. Nobody else is perfect. But the one thing, you can say a lot of things about me, but the one thing you cannot say is that I am an anti-Semite. I'm a bigot. You know, none of those things. And that hurt the most, Ryan. So they didn't campaign on that within the district because they knew they couldn't win on that. But behind the scenes, that is how they were raising their money. And it made me think of the time. You remember in 2008 when it became, when when uh, Senator Obama was the nominee for the Democrats and Senator uh, McCain was the nominee for the Republicans. And Senator McCain was at a town hall where an older white lady got up and she was railing against mm-hmm. then Senator Obama. She called him a, a, a Muslim and she said that he was a terrorist. 
I can't trust Obama. I, I have read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. Now, Senator McCain had two choices to make, just nod his head and go along with it, or to speak up and speak out, even at the risk of mm-hmm. not only alienating the lady that made the false comment, but also the audience. And you know what Senator John, you know what I, Senator I, John McCain remember, did. Yeah. He basically said, you know, we don't agree on much, but he's a good man. Right. And he's not a terrorist. No, no, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a, he's, a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with. Imagine how differently my race would have been had Ms. Brown and or any of the other candidates running alongside would have said to DMFI or anybody that was trying to paint me that way, I might not agree with her. Hey, I want to win this race as much as she wants to win this race. Nina Turner is a daughter of this community. She stands up for justice, particularly racial justice, and she ain't no, she's not an anti-Semite. Imagine if Ms. Brown had that kind of integrity, but she did not. And the result at the precinct level was extraordinary in the neighborhood of Beechwood. Yes, which, which, which was in my Senate district. In, so turnout overall across the district was about 17%. That's right, so, very low, abysmally low. But in that neighborhood, heavily Jewish neighborhood, mm-hmm. I believe it was 32%. Yes. So almost double. Double. And the outer ring suburban communities that were more affluent too, the turnout when you compare it to the turnout in portions of Akron that represent the 11th congressional district and then Cleveland itself outnumbered because I won those areas. I won the working class, blacks, whites, and Hispanic community, both on the east side and also the west side, which was a beautiful thing. They just didn't turn out at the same level as the more affluent communities and also the... And you ended up losing by roughly 4,000 right. votes. And by my calculation, I think in that, in Beachwood, that kind of neighborhood alone, mm-hmm. you lost 4,000 mm-hmm. 4, and, and, votes. And let us not forget, Republicans were encouraged to vote in this primary, and they did. Right, right. And which is the only way you can explain, I think, that kind of uptick in, That's exactly right. in, in turnout. And so it's, yeah. it's interesting because a lot of people look for lots of different national implications to draw from the race. But the way the media analyzes these things, that if, if you win by one vote, then everything went right. If you lose by one vote, everything exactly went wrong. Right. But if it turns out that that Beachwood neighborhood kind of flipped the race, then the question of Medicare for all and Green New Deal and progressivism, all, all these things well, we didn't run on it don't issue. even... I mean, so any national person that's trying to draw this kind of what I would call a lazy conclusion, it's an easy conclusion because some in the national media want to continue to stoke this progressive against corporatists or, you know, or more establishment Democrats. What happened in the 11th Congressional District, now it was that, How there's a however to it. Our campaign ran on the issues. Mm-hmm. The other campaign did not. It was, well, I'll tell you what their issue was. Anybody but Nina. The fact that I did not show the requisite worship to the Democratic Party and also to the current administration. One of my donors, a supporter of mine who navigates the corporatist world, is not a progressive by any stretch of the imagination, but they like and respect me for what I stand for and what I'm trying to do. And they actually had conversations with uh, Clyburn people. And he asked them, you know, why are you guys doing this to Nina Turner? And they told him that I was not the right kind of Democrat. Mm-hmm. It turns out that in a district that by over 30 points is Democrat, that a Democrat was going to win, thereby the totals in the House of Representatives would be safe. The moral of the story is Nina Turner is not the right kind 
of Democrats. Right. And so when you when you did finally go negative, at least one of the ads that, that I saw was based on an intercept story by Matthew Cunningham Cook. Yeah. That that dug deep into um, her her record on the council, and having uh, supported approved uh, a ton of money for a company that was linked to her fiance. If sure, I'm remembering the details of it of it correctly, and ha- having previously said that she would recuse herself from from any uh, you know any any, votes, any business that came business before the council that was related. There are laws around this. There there as, are as yeah. well. Um, and you know Ohio's laws they need to be tightened. They're a little flimsy, but. Uh, absolutely. That would be for anybody. Recuse yourself. And so did you notice Simple. the, uh, did those ads work, in other words? Like if, and it going forward for progressive campaigns, does, do do those types of ads actually show up in the public consciousness or are people so inured to it? Or is it somewhere in between? I think somewhere in between. We got to remember this was a special election. So by the nature of it being a special election, there was always going to be a low voter turnout, unfortunately. And that is very unfortunate for democracy. We just had a mayoral race turn out about 15 percent. Jeez, I mean, people just mm-hmm. just totally opting out. Um, I, I, I think it's, 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 it's kind of in between. Also, knowing that the primaries in August, people are not accustomed to voting mm-hmm. in August. You still got the impacts of COVID. People are still suffering, trying to figure out what they're going to do, uh, you know, wondering not whether or not they're going to have a roof over their heads. So I'm saying that to say that there were a confluence. You know, just like you said, the 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 brush up in 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 Gaza and, and Israel. So there were a confluence of factors that were definitely unique to this race that we don't often talk about in context mm-hmm. of the entire special election. But to directly answer your question, yes, the progressive movement must be willing because we're so up there about our issues, Medicare for all, mm-hmm. canceling student debt, uh, strengthening unions, making sure people have clean air, clean water, clean food, that we can get so caught up in that and from a tactical perspective forget that in order to push that kind of agenda, we got to get the power. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I hope that my campaign influences others moving forward. And also the institutions that make up the progressive movement are going to have to come together in robust ways, pick three seats, five seats, whatever, and say, we're going to do these seats together. Now, we might have a whole bunch of other seats, but these three seats, we're bringing all of our firepower together my race will be an example of, yeah, did I have the support of those groups? But once these other outside groups came in, in the way they came in, I believe that our the, the progressive institutions should have come in. And this is no no negative on them. It's just how, you know, hindsight being 2020 and, and some of the things that I'm going to recommend to them. People are numb. Going back to what you asked me, I think people are just numb with just trying to survive every day that they're not really paying attention if they were paying attention, they would probably say, well, dang, she should have recused herself. This kind of stuff is not right. But when you're in survival mode all mm-hmm. the time, you can barely pay attention. So that's a luxury that affluent folks have the opportunity to do. And since the die had already been cast amongst many of the affluent people, not all, because I, I had a lot of affluent people supporting me. I want that to be clear, too. Um, it, you know, that. It didn't stick in, in every place. It just didn't. So my campaign and, and my caution to all progressive campaigns is that if the other side is willing to go there. We got to go there, too. And sooner. And quick. Right. Yeah. As soon as it happened, as soon as they did, because they show that they didn't want to just have a, a, a debate about the issues. 
that we shouldn't have let them get the second, third, fourth, fifth hit in mm-hmm. without an immediate response. But again, when you are in the front runner status, kind of the 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 wisdom of that is that you don't punch down. Right. And so, so yeah, let's move into into talking about the right the right the kind right of, kind. One of the th- the things you got hit for, not voting for the. Democratic platform. Turner even voted no on the entire Democratic platform, rejecting Biden's plan to build on Obamacare. That was probably yeah. the weakest of all of, yeah. all of the hits yeah. because you had negotiated improvements. Yeah, we had it. already planned that out. Right. Certain of us were going to not vote for it on principle because it didn't include Medicare mm-hmm. for all and others were going to support it. And then also not supporting Hillary Clinton in the 2016 General. Support Clinton over Trump? Not Nina Turner. Help Biden defeat Trump? Turner refused. And then the infamous bowl of shit remark. In 2020, she trashed Joe Biden. You got two bowls of in front of you. Turner said voting for Biden was like eating Compared voting for Joe Biden to eating half a bowl of Oh my. Which one of those hit hardest? And do you think they made a crucial difference? For the type of voter that was going to come out? Yeah, mm-hmm. because those voters are the any blue will do. And so if you're being judged on loyalty, how loyal you are, when you lay out the variables you just laid out, it's like, oh, my God, Nina Turner really ain't the right kind of Democrat, <laughs> you know. But I question, you know, what is the right kind of Democrat? You know, James Baldwin has a quote, one of my favorite books, The Fire Next Time. He talked about this country and he basically said, I love this country more than any other. And because of my love, and I'm paraphrasing, I have the right to criticize mm-hmm. it. That is how I feel about the Democratic Party. I am a Democrat. You know, and we we actually devolved into, and that's another calculation that I think we should have made, because we started to play on their turf. So they say Nina Turner's not a Democrat. Now I got to prove I'm a Democrat. Uh That got me hemmed up. No, I am a Democrat, but I am a Shirley Chisholm Democrat. Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, Mm -hmm. unbought and unbossed. That was her campaign slogan when she ran for president in 1972. So they got us off our game a little bit, because here we are trying to prove how much of a Democrat I am. Democratic nominee for Secretary of State in 2014. Democratic member of the Ohio Senate. Democrat as a councilwoman. A Democrat for President Obama, you know, twice uh, to the convention. What, what, what more do you want? And g- given the turnout, uh, because it's a special election, and you know, it's uh, super concentrated into really partisan That's Democrats right. who are paying a, a lot of attention. Yeah. Do you think it would have been different in a regular Oh, I do. Because uh, first of all, when you got 435 seats, as we are going to have in 2022, plus the Senate seats that are up, you can't concentrate all that firepower mm-hmm. on one seat. And, and and when you're making a strategic calculus as somebody that's looking at all the Democratic seats, there are going to be some Democrats running and they're not running in a safe Democratic seat who going to need that firepower to come save them. So absolutely, the turnout would have been different, would have more college students. Who mm-hmm. rock with August, so not, yeah, yeah people like me and the progressive movement that was missing. You will have more people who are going to come out and participate. And losing a, in a neighborhood by four thousand votes kills you if there are only fifty thousand. You know, you only need fifty thousand to win, but if you need a hundred thousand, yes, losing That's a net right. of four thousand neighborhood right. or it's less. So are you in? Different are you in again, in or, or is incumbency too much of a? Oh, no. I, mean, I guess there's re- well, there's redistricting, too. Yes, right? redistricting is going on all over the country, and uh, the lines will be different. And then also, you know, the person takes office. They can't take office before November. Mm-hmm. It'll be the holidays. Right. You know, and then it's January. Right. And February. Do you think Rep- Republicans in Ohio have a habit 
of working with, um, I think Joyce Beatty in the in the past. Uh, there was there's there's been some reporting about how Beatty helped craft districts, a district that was favorable to her. Um, I was in the legislature at the you, time. So you remember? I voted against that map. By uh, so the you way. remember this? Yes. Yeah. So uh, yeah. And it, it's not just Ohio. This no, it is Missouri and over. other yeah. places. Republicans work with black elected Democrats to strengthen their seats in exchange for them voting for. Isn't that what every incumbent wants? Yeah. One of the reasons why seat, I right? voted against the map in 2011 is because it was not representative of the Democratic vote in Ohio, whereby 12 seats almost always were going to go to Republicans and four seats almost always will go to Democrats. So if you're standing up for the people and the way people vote in the state, you got to say this is unfair. I proudly voted against that map, but absolutely. Incumbents go incumbent. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there are many Democrats, probably most Democrats, as long as the map favors them individually, they okay with it. Right. It's not, it's not, that's not partisan there. And it's, it's also not racial. It's only racial because there are, the Voting Rights Act, you know, requires certain minority districts. And the irony is, to that point you're making, Ryan, is that the 11th Congressional District came into existence because of the fight of the Stokes brothers, you know, Congressman Stokes, mm-hmm. you know, and also his his brother, uh, Mayor Stokes, and was created because of the Civil Rights Act. Right. And in 2021, the majority of blacks for the first time in that historic district did not decide who the leader was going to be. But so you are looking at the race, it sounds like. Oh, I'm Depending looking at everything. You're looking at, everything oh. is on the table. Uh, one of, uh, last thing on the tactical front, what, another thing you, you were hit for was the spending on, what was it, the divine Mulvey Longabaugh. Longabaugh had done a bunch of ads for Bernie in 2016, right? So there was it 400000 for the shooting production, all that. People were saying that that's too much. Like that's spending too much on the production right. of these you ads. Know, um, I, I love how these people come in in the 11th hour, whoever <laughs> the they are. We spent the money in a very strategic way, given the information that we had at the time. That was not wildly out of what somebody would pay for for the quality. Right. And I got to tell you something. Everywhere I went, people were talking about how good those commercials were. They were impactful. I stayed on the issues. They were very well done. And so I'm not going to get into this divide and conquer between the people you know, who were on my team, including the consultants. We were mm-hmm. not over. You know, it, it was fair. The largest expense, as you know, in studying politics mm-hmm. and campaigns, the largest expense, you know, other than your staffing, is is production, commercial right. production. I also wanted to ask you about the role of the kind of online left in the race. You raised a ton of money from small donors, so oh, there's yeah. there's obviously a grassroots and they love me and I love them. Base. They came to my rescue every time the neoliberals came out. To right? Yes, me. every t- like Hillary Clinton endorses a yeah, hundred thousand oh, comes my into God, you. We raised, I'm like, <laughs> please come out and endorse again. Right. Why don't you? Right. They they were raising more money for you but than you they can't, were for her. But you can't plan on that. You see right. what I mean? That's the difference. That's why timing is everything and all money is not equal. I'm glad you brought that up because when you have a budget, my campaign manager has a budget. We got a budget based on what we have right now, and so. So what we mean by all money is not the same and the timing of the money. Yes, the movement responded. And I want to thank them for that. But we couldn't bank on that mm-hmm. throughout. And the last thing you want to do, 
um, as a campaign manager to come back and tell your principal you hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt because mm-hmm. I don't overspent money. So, yes, that movement came to my rescue, but we couldn't plan the long term on that. But I love that. I love the movement for that. That is why I was able to raise the money that I was able to raise. And so while it, while there's clearly that that robust national grassroots online mm-hmm. movement there, the media ecosystem has has changed since 2016. Yes. And so in, in 2016 and also in 2018, when the, the squad was you know, coming into Congress for the first time, there was sort of an alliance of the online progressive ecosystem and this grassroots donor base that would just, you know, that was firing money at Bernie Sanders or firing money at you know, whichever candidate was kind of the, the unified, recognized avatar for the movement at the time. Since, I'd say, and I'm curious for your take on this, since Sanders' second loss, it, it has kind of splintered off in different directions. And there wasn't much attention from, say, the YouTube left. The shows that in the past would have been doing nightly segments about the race, and which then creates a more predictable flow of money because it's I don't know what you would know better, but maybe 10, 20, $30,000 each, each time is then sure. pumped into the campaign. This time the, the organizing was, was elsewhere. Do you notice an effect of that or because there's such a sizable national grassroots base? Not really. Not really. I mean, we did have I many people like Kyle Kaminsky and others, TYT, some other independent people, you know, Tim Black and others, they were there. If you're talking about in a more concentrated, robust way, maybe not. But no, we didn't notice that because the movement itself, they came through. Now, we couldn't predict that they were going to come through because you know what motivates the base is, oh, my God, they're attacking her. Mm-hmm. See, what we're going to have to do as a movement is to raise that kind of money up front in mm-hmm. anticipation. Don't wait till the attack come. I just want them to know right now there's a progressive run and they're going to be attacked. Look at India Walton, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ryan, can I just use her as an example? She's a Democratic Socialist. She won the primary. Now, she, a little different situation. She actually won her primary, and the corporatist Democrats still decided <laughs> that they were going to upend the will of the people so that the incumbent doing everything that he can, luckily a court just threw out mm-hmm. an appeal, but doing everything that he can with the help of institutional Democrats even though India Walton is the nominee for Buffalo, New York. So what I want the movement to take from that is that we can't only respond when they start hitting the progressive candidate. We got to go into the race knowing they're going to hit the progressive candidate and to give that money right away so that whatever happens in that race, they got the arsenal already set. So now if they don't hit hit them as, as hard as, as you thought, no harm, no foul. They got money to be able to help other candidates and do the things that they need to do to make it all the way to the end. The movement needs to be a little more disciplined and we got to be more agile. And we cannot let the lofty issues that change humanity that we're fighting for cloud our judgment on just how negative, how hard the corporatist Dems will come at progressives. We got more than enough examples. They did it to Senator Sanders. They did it to me. I mean, a lot of the Congresswomen and men now who are part of the squad, they did it to them too. So we don't need no more examples. Mm -hmm. So between now and whatever you do next, I just saw recently that you joined TYT, speaking of. I did. I'm so happy to be on TYT as a as a as a guest, ho- they have guest hosts on the various shows, and I'm looking forward to 
being able, you know how important it is to have independent media, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. I have been a contributor for CNN and MSNBC and certainly in, enjoyed my time there. And I, I and, guest host occasionally for yeah. TYT. What, what are you going to yeah. be doing for them? Well, I'm going to be, um, you know, on, on uh, various shows and uh, I'm also got, you know, a, a little surprise coming up that I don't want to <laughs> let the cat out of the bag right now, but I'm going to be on there weekly at least three days a week, weekly. So I'm really excited about the opportunity to continue to strengthen the, ba the base and encourage the base. And one other point I want to make, Ryan, I think the attacks, what I want to say to the movement, I don't want them to get weary and well-doing because just as certain powers see opportunities to take what they think to take down somebody like me or somebody like Senator Sanders, who has not been taken down. He is the chairman of the budget committee. So what they meant for evil turned into good. And I believe that's going, that's the same case for me, whether I run again or not. And again, I got all options on the table, but they target leaders like myself and Senator Sanders and others because they want the movement to get weary. They want them to say, look at what happened to Senator Sanders. We can't win. Look at what mm -hmm. happened to Senator Nina Turner. We can't, like, if she can't win, nobody can win. That's what they want because they want people to lose hope and lose their commitment and connection to keeping up the fight for justice. So I want people to know right now that not one person is more important in this movement. Now, so, some of us have more influence, but that which we are fighting for is worth fighting for no matter what happens in individual elections. Now, we, got, we can't be naive. To make the change, we need the power. And we need to continue to fight for that power to get progressives elected all, to all levels of government so that we can push the policy can, policies and create the conditions that are going to change people's material lives. Albert Einstein once said that poisonous weeds and corn can grow in the same soil if the conditions are right. I believe that the conditions matter more than the soil. And that is ultimately what this movement is about is creating better conditions. So don't get discouraged. You could be mad, but even in that anger, we got to strategize. You know, Michael Render, my brother, Killer Mike, he mm -hmm. talks about planning, plotting, strategizing, or I think it's plot, plan, organize, strategize, and mobilize. And that's what we have to do in every single situation. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Oh, it was such a pleasure to be here with you, Ryan. You got to have me back. I am in the studio, y'all, with the one <laughs> right and only here. Ryan right in Grimm, the baby. I just want to thank him for his uh, journalism and, and the folks at The Intercept who really dig deep and also give us all something else to think about. Independent media is important. So please, please, please support independent media. I, in, I endorse that fully, <laughs> 100%. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Nina Turner, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in 3 years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly 3 years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.